You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to a special episode of Take You in Action PA, episode 33. I'm Calvin Minjone. I'm one of your hosts, and we've also got uh, Jacob Daniel making a return here. How are you doing? I'm great, man. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, too. Uh, should have adjusted this a little bit. But anyway, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we got a very special guest tonight. Uh, I don't want to take any time away from that. So I'll just say quickly before we start. Uh, quick shout out to the Pennsylvania Convention. This is the last weekend we'll be having a show where they have the early bird registration. So sign up for that at LPPA2023.com. Uh, Got a lot of special guests coming out for that. Uh, it's March 3rd through 5th in Reading, PA. Uh, so definitely come out for that one. Uh, Jacob, you have anything to say before we start? Nah, nah, let's get going. All right. So let's uh, bring on our guest here. So <laughs> we're kind of right to the chase. Um, he is, uh, among other things, the author of Fool's Errand. And I'm sorry, I, I should have had the intro pull up in front of me, but I put it enough in already. Script. Time to end enough the already. Thank you. War in Afghanistan, which I have a signed copy of. I don't have it on me, though. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, I think that's the one thing I I might have messed up on before we started. Um, but at any rate, uh, Scott, uh, welcome to the show. How's it going, guys? Appreciate it. And sorry I'm late. Yeah, it's all good. Um, so uh, we need you to bring us up to date or bring our audience up to date on uh, what's been going on with Russia and Ukraine. And as you always say, uh, everybody, at least in the... Uh, corporate press seems to be truncating the antecedent, pretending that history started yesterday. Uh, so how do we get to where we are now? All right. Well, that's a couple of different things. So where we are now is it's really a rock and a hard place type situation where the 
Russians have a more powerful and larger military, a, a wealthier state, more tanks and artillery. Um, and yet the Ukrainians have the home field advantage and the backing of the United States and our Western allies and our technology and money and so forth. So the Russians have not really been able to take over, you know, all of what they've tried to bite off in the last year, almost now. Um, and doesn't look like they're going to be able to. At the same time, the Ukrainians are not able to force them out, as even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff keeps pointing out, that this war is not really working out that well for them, and maybe they need to negotiate now. They're probably in as best of a position of strength as they're going to be in for the foreseeable future. So it's really a tough spot, and both sides are making you know, absolutist demands that the other side completely capitulate before they even negotiate and this kind of thing. So, um, you know, in other words, neither side's really in a position of strength. Neither side really wants to negotiate. They both want to keep fighting. And yet neither of them seem like they're really in a position to achieve what they want in the medium term here. So the war could continue to grind on like this for a while. And that's, you know, if we're lucky and it doesn't escalate into major power conflict, which is, of course, you know, uh, always a risk and is an increasing risk here, I think, as, um, you know, the Ukrainian military gets ground down, the Americans and their allies then resort to providing more and more weapons and, you know, escalating, sending in now tanks where before they would not and that kind of thing. So in the matter of mission creep and the self-licking ice cream cone and all of that kind of deal, the economics of bureaucracy mean that the war really could escalate. Um, but so now how do we get here? I mean, the long and the short of it is that when the after World War II, America and the Soviet Union had basically divided Europe in half and the Soviets occupied everything from halfway across Germany to the east there. And so, you know, all of Poland, Austria was um, neutral, but Hungary was not. And. And then, you know, uh, Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, um, uh, Poland, the Baltic states, and of course, Belarus and Ukraine and uh, all of the Balkans too. Well, the Balkans were, you know, Yugoslavia, which was communist, but not under the control of the USSR, but, you know, still a commie country and whatever. Anyway, so the West was, you know, halfway across, there was a El the Elbe River, halfway across Germany was the dividing line. and America, you know, the threat of the Cold War was that the Soviets better not try to conquer Western Germany, France, Spain, whatever, move into, you know, Belgium, Denmark, move into the into Western Europe and that we were willing to go to war to keep them out. That's what NATO was for uh, in the name of defense to keep the Russians out. Um, but then the Soviet Union broke up 30 years ago uh, from 1988 through 91 was the unraveling of the Soviet Union. And by the end of 1991, Christmas Day, 1991, the Soviet Union completely ceased to exist. Every last member of the USSR was set free and the red flag came down from the Kremlin and the red, white, and blue flag went up in its place. And that was it. The communist evil empire was dead. So at that time, the question was, you know, what are we going to do with our NATO military alliance? The Warsaw Pact, the commie alliance was gone, but what about ours? 
Now, Pat Buchanan and Ron Paul and Doug Bandow and Ted Carpenter and a lot of great people said that what we ought to do is abolish NATO and come home. Even uh, Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations, Jean Kirkpatrick, I don't know if she said abolish NATO, but she certainly said come home. You know, NATO could just be a treaty. It doesn't have to be this massive organization. Could, you know, just be a promise. But we should bring our troops home from Europe and we should be a normal country in a normal time, she said. And, the, you know, the paleoconservatives and the libertarians said, you know, that's it. The commies are gone. We should dismantle the empire, our own empire, and come home. And instead, what happened, as you guys know, is George H.W. Bush took us to war in the Middle East, announced the New World Order, which meant that America will use our preeminent power essentially to enforce the world law. As Bush Sr. put it, what we say goes. That's the the liberal rules-based world order. And um, then, you know, as you guys are probably familiar with the defense planning guidance of 1992 to 1994, um, as well as of 94, but written in 92. It's weird the way they do it. Anyway, but what it was is it was Paul Wolfowitz and Scooter Libby and Salmay Khalil Zad, and they wrote essentially the doctrine, the American military doctrine for the post-Cold War world. And it said that America would be the single preeminent global economic, political, and especially military power, and that we'll never tolerate the rise of any near-peer competitor to us. So not Russia, not China, nor, you know, uh, Germany in alliance with anybody else either. No regional uh, grouping of nations will be able to come together. We will attack them first before we allow them to rise up to challenge our power. And that's, you know, indefinite, essentially. And that's known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine, right? And this was part of what they were implementing with the terror war 20 years ago. It was in under the excuse of al-Qaeda terrorism, they were going to essentially double down on America's position of dominance in the Middle East. Containment of Iraq was no longer good enough. We had to take it for ourselves. And, and then, of course, part of that was always the Cold War with Russia and especially China. Hang on a second, I got a call. Um, because, you know, China is greatly dependent on fuel imports. So if you control the Middle East, those uh, choke points, as Dick Cheney called them there in the Straits of Hormuz and all that, that means in a contest with China or a war with China, America can cut them off. Now, of course, that's not really necessary because our Navy could cut them off anyway, right? But that was the idea. It was, you know, to dominate the Middle East, to get a better hedge against China. And of course, Russia is a hydrocarbon exporter, so it doesn't work so well against them, although it gives us dominance over the oil price, or it was meant to, to give us dominance over the oil price, which would help, uh, or would have helped if it had worked, um, to uh, to be able to ma manipulate the price to screw the Russians, uh, right? Which is how Reagan helped bring down the, the empire, really, was a, a deal that he made with the Saudis that, you know, we'll get you back over the long term. But right now, overproduce, drive the cost of oil way, way down and in order to screw the Soviets so they can't make any money selling oil, which really did help to bankrupt them. It was one of the things that helped kill the, the Soviet Union. So anyway, um, it's that doctrine is essentially what we're going through now. And you see kind of this contest 
well, hang on, I'm, I don't want to get off too too far off the, the chronological story here. So what happened was essentially the idea was not only are we going to not listen to Ron Paul and abolish NATO, we're going to expand NATO to include Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic. And then, you know, soon after that, the Baltic states and uh, the and in fact, most of the Balkans and the rest as much as they can. And what people need to understand about this is that never mind Ron Paul and Pat Buchanan and all these guys who really knew way better and said we should get rid of NATO altogether. Forget them even. But you had the kings of American foreign policy, right? The centrists, the so-called graybeards from the Council on Foreign Relations who were saying we should not be doing this. Um, now, Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski were for it, and that was huge and important and key to to the success of the policy. But there were so many former Cold War hawks who said we should not expand NATO. And that was, you know, just to name a few, was George Kennan, who had coined the containment policy against the Soviet Union in the Cold War in his long telegram and his uh, article for foreign affairs on the sources of Soviet conduct. He said, well, we won the Cold War. We shouldn't be doing this. His rival, Paul Nitze, who said Cold, uh, containment isn't good enough. We need to roll back the Soviet Union. He agreed, so we should not be doing this. Bob McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense during Vietnam, and uh, even Brent Scowcroft, who had been George H.W. Bush's national security advisor and right-hand man, former four-star general, um, and who had, you know, helped to oversee Iraq War One, even. And they all said, listen, we should not be expanding NATO unless maybe, again, this is not my policy, but I'm just saying this is what they're explaining. Unless maybe we bring Russia in first, then we bring in the countries between the West and and uh, Russia. And that way, the Russians don't feel like we're drawing a new dividing line in Europe with them on the other side of it. Only now we're drawing the line further and further east. Now, at this time, Russian power had just completely collapsed. So there was really nothing they could do about this but protest. And the Bush government, you know, had Bush senior government had promised them that they would not expand NATO. And that's not just, you know, they try to say, oh, technicality, that only just meant inside Germany. But that's really not true. There are multiple quotations from during these negotiations where they promised that, no, that precludes Poland. That means we're not going to take advantage of the situation. We're not going to expand NATO into the former Warsaw Pact states. But they didn't make that part of an official treaty. And the Americans just said, OK, well, screw you. If you don't have a treaty, then you don't have a deal, um, which is really not how it's supposed to work at all. We had all kinds of agreements with the Soviets and the Russians during the Cold War that were not in a treaty. Like when Jack Kennedy promised never to invade Cuba and to get the missiles out of Turkey, if they would get the missiles out of Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That wasn't a treaty. It was a secret deal signed by the president's little brother. Not even signed, just a handshake by the president's little brother um, and a reporter who was like working on behalf of the talking, speaking on behalf of the Russians there. Um, but the, anyway, so they expanded NATO and at the expense of Russian security. And the thing is, so not only did the American, you know, foreign policy graybeards and really a lot of the Europeans warn that expanding NATO into Russia's former territory is going to provoke a reaction. The Russians did, too. They said all along under even Gorbachev and then under Yeltsin and, of course, under Putin over and over again for the last 30 years. They've said, listen, guys, you should not be doing this. You're you're right. You know, encroaching into our territory. 
you're making us, uh, you know, putting us in a less secure position, which just means that we have to build up our forces more. And um, so, uh, of course, then Clinton had launched uh, wars in Bosnia and in Kosovo, both times against the Russian allied Serbs. Um, he helped rig the election in 96 to keep Yeltsin in there, which was he was the guy who hired Putin. And he helped back the uh, Chechen terrorists in um, well, and hell, the the uh, uh, Kosovar uh, terrorists, the KLA and the Chechens in um, in the Chechen wars. And this is, you know, help was the proximate uh, you know, cause of the rise to power of Vladimir Putin. He was hired to prosecute the war of 99, 2000. And then that was what made him, you know, uh, got him picked to replace Yeltsin, who retired early and, and appointed Putin in his place. Um, you know, direct consequences of that. Bush comes in, tears up the anti-ballistic missile treaty, expands NATO by nine more countries, um, including the Baltic states right on Russia's border. Of course, launches the, you know, absolutely criminal and murderous invasion of Iraq uh, against Russian uh, advice. Um, and he launched what are called the color code of revolutions. This really started with Clinton, but it continued, especially through Bush. You had in in Serbia in 2000, but then under uh, W. Bush, they did um, uh, former Soviet Georgia in 2003 and then Ukraine in 2004 and then 2005 they did Kyrgyzstan they tried in Lebanon and failed and they tried in Belarus and failed and then in 2009 you remember the green revolution in Iran and you know essentially the Iranian one not so much but with the others the clear intent is to overthrow any government friendly to Russia any government in Russia is near abroad that would rather get along with them than us to try to you know peel them all away and then he installed what they call defensive missiles, anti-ballistic missile missiles in Romania and Poland. And to go ahead and delve into this for just a second, the thing is, Bush said the purpose of this is to defend against ballistic missile attack on Europe from Iran. But Iran doesn't have missiles that can reach anywhere near there, nor are they developing them, nor do they have nuclear weapons, nor are they developing them. So this is the obvious hoax. Nobody believed it when Bush said it at the time. It made no sense. But then the other argument that, no, these anti-ballistic missile missiles are here to shoot down Russian missiles, that didn't make much sense either. As Bush himself said, W. Bush we're talking about now, himself said that, look, we don't have enough anti-missile missiles here to shoot down an incoming salvo from the Russians, which is right. So obviously this isn't for them. So they don't, they shouldn't worry that we're trying to build up our first strike capability against them and shoot down their retaliatory missiles or whatever, because, um, you know, this wouldn't make sense for that mission anyway. And he had a point there, but there's one more that leaves kind of one more possibility. If they're not for Iran, because that's stupid and they're not for Russia because it's not enough, that would never work then, uh, or shooting down Russian missiles, then maybe the purpose of them is to have an excuse to install the Mark 41 missile launchers, the MK-41 launch tubes, which can be fitted to shoot Tomahawk cruise missiles that could be tipped with hydrogen bombs. And that was what Putin had said ever since, you know, Bush announced this policy. And I think first in 2004 or five that we're doing this. And 
And they complained about it ever since, that this is essentially violating the spirit of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that keeps mid-range missiles out of Europe. And now you claim that this is just anti-missile missiles that you're putting in here, but we don't believe you. And, you know, they had no inspections regime. Colonel McGregor told me himself, Colonel Douglas McGregor, that in 2004, when they first started talking about putting the anti-missile missiles into Romania, that he proposed we should set up an inspections regime with the Russians so that they can come in and make sure what kind of missiles we have installed in these tubes. And then and he said they just laughed him off. You know, screw the Russians. What are they going to do about it? They're a third rate power, as uh, William Perry said. You know, they don't like it tough. We can do whatever we want. We don't even have to take their opinion into consideration. So now, um, you know, Obama comes in, he continues the same policies, and he overthrows the government in Kiev in 2014. That's twice in 10 years that they overthrew. You know, W. Bush did it in 04, and Obama did it in 2014. And um, that was what caused the war to break out when the people of the East uh, refused to accept the rule of the new coup d'etat junta there. The new junta declared a war on terrorism and attacked them. And they fought for, you know, three quarters of a year, basically. They had a terrible war where something like 10,000 people were killed. And then they had the Minsk One deal in November of 2014 and the Minsk Two deal in February of 2015 that were supposed to bring an end to the fighting, but never really did. Um, and, you know, thousands of people were killed on both sides in the years since then. And oh, I skipped the seizure of Crimea is another consequence of the uh, coup d'etat was that the Russians decided that they would take the entire Crimea Peninsula back. It was originally, you know, taken up, taken by the Russians in 1783, the same year that America negotiated our peace with the British after the Revolutionary War, before our constitution was ever ratified. And it had been Russian territory all that time until 1954, when the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev gave it to the Ukrainians. But it was still supermajority ethnically Russian uh, land. And then, you know, there are minorities uh, there too, the Tatars and Ukrainians that live there as well. It was a supermajority Russian population. And it's the home of their Black Sea fleet. It'd be like if somebody tried to steal San Diego from the United States. Like, we're just not going to put up with that. And so what happened was the, um, in, you know, March 2014, the Russian Marines and sailors left their base and seized the whole peninsula, killing no one. I mean, Wikipedia says six people were killed, but it's not even clear that any of them were killed by Russian soldiers. Seems like a couple of firefights broke out and the Ukrainian military simply withdrew, basically. So, um, you know, that's, you know, what led to the proximate cause, all that. I want to go back to the missile defense thing for just one second, that in 2015, when Obama was still in power, um, Putin came to New York and he did this salon uh, at this, what you call, I don't know what it was called, this this group meeting thing. And the former American ambassador to Russia, Jack Matlock, was there. And he said, listen, Putin, you got to understand that, and I'm sure you do understand, but these anti-missile missiles, they're not there to shoot down Russian missiles. And they're not there to even, you know, uh, smuggle Tomahawk cruise missiles into Europe. It's just a boondoggle, man. They're just stealing money from the American taxpayer. You know, it's a government program, you know, cronyism. And you must understand that, right? And Putin says, well, look, first of all, 
Can't you find another part of your economy to subsidize other than missile defense systems surrounding my country? You know, what about biotech or, you know, something productive like that? And then he says, and I do understand the incentives of the military industrial complex in America and all that, but look at the position that you're putting me in. I'm in charge of security here. I have to react. If you're going to build up your anti-missile missiles, that means I have to build up my missiles, doesn't it? And then three years later, in his State of the Union, whatever they call it, State of the Nation speech of 2018, he announced a brand new generation of nuclear missiles that they'd been working on from the time that W. Bush tore up the anti-ballistic missile treaty in December of 2001. He kicked off this huge project. And now, so here it is, you know, 16, 17 years later, and he's going, here's where we are at. We now got a new heavy um, multiple re-entry vehicle missile that uh, can, one, go around the South Pole where you don't even pretend to have defenses and carries enough multiple warheads on it to destroy every major city in Texas with one rocket. Kill all of Texas. Uh, it's a, the heaviest ICBM in history uh, the, and the most capable of destruction. Then he says, we got a new nuclear-powered cruise missile that has essentially unlimited range, could fly around the entire world, and could sneak up behind your defenses and hit anything that you've got. And he says, we have the uh, a new uh, thermonuclear torpedo, which is basically like a, a submarine, a drone submarine uh, tipped with an H-bomb that they can drive into any port in the planet, uh, any naval port or, or shipping port on the planet. And, you know, imagine somebody setting off an H-bomb in the middle of San Francisco Bay, something like that, irradiating all that water, splashing the whole city with it, um, that kind of thing. And then lastly, hypersonics, which he, he claims they now have hypersonic missiles that can go uh, as high as Mach 10, which I don't know if that's really true or not, but maybe. And so in other words, Bush kicked off a new nuclear arms race and we're losing it. Like, who knows if the Russians, you know, can produce this stuff in quantity. But, um, you know, they certainly already had enough to wipe our entire civilization off the face of the earth in an afternoon. So all Bush did was just ratchet that up and make that worse. Then Donald Trump comes in. They frame him for treason with Russia to prevent him from getting along with Russia and ending the new Cold War and explaining away their humiliating defeat in 2016. Um, and so then he really didn't have control of his Russia policy the whole time. Or if he did, it was just a series of him giving in to the national security state. Obama was afraid to arm the Ukrainians. So Trump went and did it. And I can't find it now. It's bothering me. If anybody has this, please send it to me. Um, I was looking very hard for it. I couldn't find any more. My notes said it was in BuzzFeed um, from November 2017, where I know this happened, where Trump Jr. said, See, you can't call us pro-Russian traitors now because we're pouring all these weapons into Ukraine. And that proves, you know, that all those lies about us aren't true and all that. Um, and, uh, you know, vastly increased, well, he added Montenegro and Macedonia uh, to NATO. And he massively increased um, naval and air force exercises off the coast of Russia. You know, it's a 12-mile international, um, you know, claim over waters 12 miles out. Well, they'd go to 12 and a half miles out with their nuclear bombers and forcing the Russians to light up all their radar systems and everything, essentially rehearsing a nuclear first strike. And they're doing this all during Trump years. And uh, then on the way out, Trump tears up the INF Treaty, Ronald Reagan's great treaty from 87 
that kept medium range missiles out of Europe. And he was going to, oh, and he tore up the Open Skies Treaty that lets each side fly unarmed planes over the other's country to monitor and make sure they're not mobilizing for war, which, you know, was Ike Eisenhower's idea and which uh, Nixon had signed. And which we don't need that. See, we have the satellites. We can see everything going on in Russia, but they need it. But we just figure, well, screw them. We don't want to give them, you know, any more information than they need or whatever. But if we're not mobilizing for nuclear war, we might want the Russians to be able to see that. Right. Don't worry, guys. You can assure yourselves we're not mobilizing here. But they might assume the worst if they can't disprove the negative, you know, or, you know, prove the negative. So um, a very dangerous move there. And he vowed he was going to let the New START Treaty expire, which probably the best thing that other than getting out of Afghanistan, it's probably the best thing Joe Biden ever did in his entire life was at least he saved the uh, New START Treaty when he came in. And Putin said to him, he goes, listen, let's save New START. Let's save the INF Treaty. Let's save the Open Skies Treaty and try to get, you know, off on the right foot here. And Biden goes, no, just New START. Right. Like Donald Trump is supposedly this, you know, total basket case who, you know, um, you know, who who just doesn't represent American policy consensus on anything ever. Right. He's the great Satan who came in and stole everything away from them and, and did everything that he wasn't supposed to do, supposedly. Right. Well, he tore up this treaty. So get back in the treaty and just say that was. Donald Trump having a bad day when he tore up that treaty, but the United States of America likes that treaty and wants to stay in it. That's all he had to do is blame it on, you know, Trump's wing nuttiness for getting out of it. But nope, uh, he took advantage of that and stayed out. Um, and then, of course, he spent the entire year of 2021 provoking the Russians, uh, threatening them, building up, uh, you know, uh, pouring more and more money into Ukraine. Uh, announcing their strategic partnership and their defense partnership and all of these things, um, pouring more and more weapons in, standardizing their military, what they call interoperability, making sure that, you know, the uh, Ukrainian command and control systems work with our own, doing joint training with their forces and including their naval forces and the rest of this. And, um, you know, last October, basically, they announced this. Um, a massive new arms deal uh, as part of the strategic partnership with NATO. And uh, I think that was probably the last straw before Putin started building up his forces and threatening to invade. And so last December, or sorry, December before last now, um, in, in January, if you go back a year, the American policy essentially was to say to Russia, you better not do it. But they were not willing to negotiate in good faith at all. They were not willing to actually, you know, make any concessions because that would be like that time Neville Chamberlain gave in to Hitler at Munich over Czechoslovakia. Because, right, everybody knows that England should have declared war on Germany over Czechoslovakia. That would have made perfect sense. Anyway, um, so you can never appease anyone. And whether the Russians have been appeasing us all this time, that's not in question because we're us. And so we can't be the ones being appeased because that would put us in the role of Hitler in this clumsy analogy. And that can't be right. We're always America in the analogy. And so that means the other guy's Hitler, even though the Russians actually fought against the Germans in that war, did the most of the losing and winning there. Um, but anyway, um, point being that um, 
the, you know, well, for example, if you go to um, last, uh, not last, sorry, November 21, uh, November before last, there's a guy named Samuel Charup from the Rand Corporation, which is essentially sponsored by the Pentagon, by the Air Force, and who you could say on a tangent, they helped get us into this mess. I'm not sure if he was in on that project or not, but in November of 21, this guy Cherup wrote a piece for foreign policy where he said, listen, threatening the Russians that you better not do it and kind of offering them sort of these soft assurances that don't worry, we're probably not going to bring Ukraine into NATO yet anyway. That's not going to be enough. We really need America to lean on the government in Kiev to implement the Minsk II peace deal, to live up to all their promises in that deal to provide essentially strong federalism, statehood, basically, for um, the Donbass region in the far east of Ukraine and um, provide them this enhanced autonomy and the rebuilding packages and all of that stuff. And as he put it, quite frankly, the Kiev government has never implemented the Minsk II deal because the Americans never leaned on them to do it. And that if we did that now, that would really defang Vladimir Putin's argument. That would really put the burden back on him. Um, but if if we really seek to avoid war, we're going to have to do that. And then what do they do? They ignored that. And that was because I believe they were not seeking to avoid war. They wanted the war to happen. And if you go back and look at uh, December 21 and January and February 22, you can find all different articles in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, NBC, and The Hill, and all over the place, saying the goal here is essentially to replicate the Afghan war. Huh? Oh, no, not that Afghan war. The 1980s Afghan war, Rambo 3, when we helped the Mujahideen fight against the Russians. Remember, when America fought our war there, it was because we switched sides. We fought on the Russian side against the Mujahideen for 20 years and then lost. Um, and so then here we are we're four months after their final defeat in Afghanistan of supposedly cleaning up the mess from their intervention there in the 1980s and 90s that led to the war of the 2000s and 2010s. They're just four or five months out of Afghanistan and they're going, yeah, we want to replicate Afghanistan. We're going to, and, and, and you can see in, in all of the statements, they all assumed that the Ukrainian military would be smashed and that the Ukrainian government would, you know, be disintegrated. That whether, whether the Russians tried to conquer all of Ukraine or not, that the, they would certainly, you know, destroy the Ukrainian military. And then from the very beginning of the war, we would essentially be backing an insurgency not a military fighting a state-on-state war, but backing an insurgency against them on, you know, like they did in um, Afghanistan with the whole premise being, and then we'll draw it out. We'll try to make it last 10 years. We'll do the, you know, that was the purpose of Afghanistan was to give them their own Vietnam, to bog them down, bleed them to bankruptcy. That was the same policy that bin Laden had mimicked in provoking America's invasion of Afghanistan 20 years later. Well, now, here they are in Ukraine saying, let's do the same thing. And we'll provoke the Russians into invading and then we'll drag it out to weaken Russia. And then what happened was 
the Ukrainians did a lot better and the Russians did a lot worse than anyone expected right away. And so once the Ukrainians succeeded in holding them off, then they said, okay, well, hell, now we can pour in a ton of weapons. We won't just bog them down fighting the Mujahideen. We'll bog them down fighting this state army and make them lose. Not too quickly, though. Um, but to drag the thing out, to weaken Russia. And as they said over and over again. So uh, now back to where we started here, where the Ukrainians can't kick the Russians out and the Russians can't defeat the Ukrainians. Or maybe they can. I don't know. We'll see what happens here. There are people are being killed in large numbers in the fighting there. So, you know, it, it, it is possible that the Russians could end up breaking the Ukrainian army's, you know, ability to continue at some point here, you know, but I really don't know that. And, and they do have the, the Ukrainians do have the backing of the Americans and that includes logistics and intelligence and uh, you know, all kinds of armaments and so forth. So, the best I can tell, and, and I'm not an expert on battlefield stuff and military tactics and all this kind of thing, but just the best I can tell about the situation, it is an unstoppable force versus an immovable object in this thing. It's, you know, been compared to World War One style trench and artillery warfare and, you know, a real muddy hellhole over there. So, um, and then if the Americans really insist on driving the Russians all the way out, like, let's assume that they could do that. They could figure out how to... Um, you know, launch this or that, you know, offensive here and attack their flank there and have a brilliant strategy for just cleaning up the Russian army and forcing them all the way out, then that really risks escalation to the use of nuclear weapons. And the Russians have shown that Ukraine is, you know, that important to them, that much more important than it is to us. Uh, and they may not be willing to use, to to lose that. You know, their policy is, that they will only use nukes if somebody uses nukes on them first or if for some other reason the existence of their state is threatened. Well, you know, you can define that pretty broadly. It's possible for them to define that as, as broadly as if they lose a war in Ukraine, that that could, you know, threaten the existence of their state back home. And, you know, they have also, you know, uh, as of last September and, and October, they have officially annexed all four eastern provinces, oblasts, they call them, in Ukraine. So not just the Donbass, which is uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, but they've also annexed officially in law and signed it and everything, uh, officially annexed Zaporozhia and Kherson. Well, this is territory, you know, in other words, they belong to Russia just as much as Crimea does now. Well, this is all territory that the Ukrainian government considers theirs. And will not concede for one moment that this is all Russian territory now. Um, but so you see there by just a turn of phrase, they've upped the ante on the conflict to such a huge degree. Um, the Russians have made it that much more difficult for them to back down um, or to compromise with the Ukrainians by officially absorbing this land that they know the Ukrainians will never give in to that. So um it really sucks. It's they have really painted us, and, and this goes for the Russians too, but especially the Americans who are, you know, the side that we are ostensibly responsible for somewhat here in our country. Um, they have really screwed us. They have painted us into a real corner here where nobody wants to back down and nobody has a real path to victory, and where uh the path of, of defeat for one side could lead to the use of nuclear weapons, which I think almost goes without saying. 
would lead to a rapid escalation in the use of nuclear weapons across the board and a general nuclear war between the United States and NATO on one side versus Russia, which would, you know, kill hundreds of millions, maybe billions in the first week and then, you know, or billion or so, I don't know, um, and then starve most of the rest of humanity over the next few years by through nuclear winter and, you know, decreasing global temperatures enough to, to cause massive crop failure and famine, you know, across the entire planet, setting humanity back by, you know, a few hundred years, a few thousand years. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, that's that's very thorough as always. Now, like if you talk to someone on the street, it's just what are the chances that they'll know? No, this is rhetorical, but what are the chances that they'll know? Like, oh, we, you know, it was actually in the conversation that Russia could have entered uh, NATO at some point. Like, what are the chances that we could have actually, you know, made deals with them and stuck to them, uh, tw you know, 20, uh, 30 years ago to prevented this from happening rather than just, you know, we don't know anything that happened before two years ago and now they just invade their neighbor for no reason. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's how most people think it. Did you guys see the clip of Kamala Harris where she was on a <laughs> yeah, I was a, thinking of that AM radio show? I mean, so when I first saw that, I thought, come on, this is a hoax, right? You know, right wing media has hoaxes a lot of times and stuff. And like she's clearly like talking to some elementary school kids, and then they like twisted it to make it seem like she's talking to adults. No, not true. She was talking to adults. She was on a morning radio show, and she said, Russia is a big country. And Ukraine is a little country and the big country attacked the little country. And I was well, look, I mean, the reason that she said it like that is because that's what they just told her. That's the vice president of the United States. And this was the briefing that she just got. OK, Madam Vice President, Russia's a big country and they just invaded a little country. Right. And so then she goes out there and repeats that. This is the best she can understand it. She's a heartbeat away from the presidency herself right now. And now, and the same goes for all the ladies on cable TV news, right? None of them know anything about this. I don't mean to be too sexist about it. The guys don't either. They don't know anything about it. This guy, Michael McCall, the Republican head of the House Armed Services Committee, who just says, you know, whatever we're doing, it's not enough. Give them more money, more weapons, more this, more that. What the hell does he know about Ukraine? You know, all he knows is it's the Republican thing to be a tough guy and to be always one click to the tougher than the Democrats. If the Democrats are giving X amount of weapons, we got to give X plus 10 as, yeah. you know, basic electoral type arithmetic it has nothing to do with the actual situation in the war at all. Yeah. So I do want to mention before we get too far into it, I'm going to share my screen here. Uh uh, so, but while I do that, um, so the Rage Against the War Machine rally, we'll be going into more detail on it at the end here. But what we're going to do is, uh, there we go. So, uh, we'll be talking about it in a lot of detail towards the end of the show. Uh, but what we're going to do right now is, uh, we'll get to as many of the questions and comments as you as we can. Uh, but if you want to make sure that we get to your question, or even if you don't have a question, you just want to leave a message, uh, we'll shout it out during the show. So I'm going to post the link in the comments right now. So it's uh, givebutter.com slash rage against war. And 
the, all these uh, donations that you're giving right now, they'll go to the cost to bring in the speakers for the rally, including Scott here. Uh, we've got the sound system uh, to so that everyone can, uh, you know, speak and hear when we get there. Um, any any other administrative uh, related to uh, getting the area set up and ready for us in Washington D.C. when we go down there. Uh, we're going to bring it to everyone's attention, including Congress and Joe Biden, that this is this is not the way. The United States should not be sending all the war material down to Ukraine. It's just dragging this out and resulting in more and more casualties and putting us closer and closer to nuclear war. So we'll be getting into the details on the end of it, but drop your questions here and we'll we'll be keeping an eye on it the whole show. So Jacob. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, and I don't know if there's even a good answer to this, but I, I just got to wonder like, what is the actual end game of the people involved here? Like, do, I mean, do they, are they really naive enough to think that they're just going to push back russia out of ukraine and then they're just going to go home and just take it and like even if even if we don't enter a nuclear war like maybe russia doesn't escalate to that degree but like do they think there's going to be no blowback from from that now or in five years or from 10 years like we're already experiencing blowback of the last you know 20 30 years and they're not learning from that so i just you know like what's going through their heads well, I think they want to overthrow the government in Moscow. They want to have a compliant government like it was during Boris Yeltsin. And or if not that, break Russia up and get it out of the way. It's too big and too independent. How can America have total global domination and full spectrum dominance and preeminence and hegemony if you have a third of the planet, you know, in Russia and China that remain independent? So if, if we can't overthrow them, we'll at least have a cold war and contain them and do everything we can to prevent them from expanding their power and influence. I mean, my take on all this is I don't give a damn about Russian power and influence. I mean, the idea in the last cold war was, and they said this explicitly, that look, if we were just talking about whether the Russian empire dominates Eastern Europe or not, nobody would care. Nobody would care. The question is, whether we're going to allow the communists to dominate Eastern Europe. And, you know, this ideology of this, you know, godless world revolution of totalitarian slavery and all of that, that's got to be opposed. Um, you know, and then, of course, it's just mission creep, right? Now communism is dead and the, the Russian Federation is run by essentially a center-right Republican with a red, right, red, right, and blue flag. And but he's independent. He's a strong enough strong man that he can tell America to go to hell. And so their idea is that, no, you know, it's like pinky and the brain. What are we going to do today? We're going to try to take over the world. The same thing we do every day. And if if Moscow stands in the way, look at how they treat North Korea and Cuba. I mean, North Korea at least has nukes. You can like form an argument around that, except, of course, that's all George W. Bush's fault, um, you know, in the first place. But look at Cuba. I mean, what is Cuba's sin? It ain't totalitarianism because America support any dictatorship. We know that. Their sin is they declared independence from the United States. And you're not allowed to do that. And if you do that, we'll make an example out of you. 
And you know, it is the same thing with North Korea. And they're no threat to the South. Uh, they're no threat, you know, obviously to our friends in Japan or anything like that. But they don't just open the door to American capital to come in and take over their country and do whatever they want with it. And so they have to be, you know, isolated and if necessary, sanctioned and starved and beaten down. The same thing with Iran, the Ayatollah. You know, when the Ayatollah was originally coming to power in 79, the CIA and the State Department told Jimmy Carter, we like this guy. He helped us overthrow Mossadegh back in 53. We can get along with him. Don't worry. The Shah's dying of cancer anyway. His regime is not going to outlive him. So we'll support the revolution. The Ayatollah's okay. Then the Ayatollah came in. Of course, people forget. The Ayatollah came into power in February 79. And the hostage crisis didn't happen until November. That whole year, Jimmy Carter and the Ayatollah were the best of friends. America was giving the Iranians intelligence, threat, uh, warning them of threats from Saddam Hussein and from the Soviet Union. And then after the hostage crisis embarrassed him in November, then America declared this permanent Cold War against Iran. That was 40 years ago. That was before the Empire Strikes Back came out. You know, literally, it was 43 years ago. Um, and um, and we haven't been able to essentially normalize relations with Iran simply because they won't completely bend over and let America take their country over again. So you're either going to join the world order on our terms or we're going to make an example out of you. We'll so contain wait, big, you. And so we're a you big country. Bomb you if you're not. So we're a big country bullying small countries. That's exactly put in right. Kamala Harris's words. <laughs> yep. You know, and, it, it, and look, really... I have no self-awareness. I just saw this clip today of Mitt Romney saying Russia's got to learn that in the 21st century, you just cannot have countries attack other countries and get away with it. And so we're not going to let them. And that's why we're pouring all these weapons in. Yeah, that's that's rich. <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah. And look, he can't tell. He does not. You know, my tweet, I said, you know, this new AI bot is almost sentient, right? It's like almost <laughs> self-aware, but not quite uh, self-aware. Oh, gosh. No, yeah, it really aggravates me. how these people are real. <laughs> it, it really aggravates me as a, like, I'm, I'm a former lefty. Like, I came from kind of like the Occupy and like Bernie bro left before I, I, I switched to libertarian like around... 2018 or so it was mainly like Mises caucus types people like you Dave Smith and others that that uh that that kind of like pulled me in uh but, but but partly what made me open to libertarianism was that I saw the left no longer be recognizable from what like I valued which was like anti-war anti-corporatism anti-corruption it was like suddenly it was all just Trump orange man bad and then you know, I, I now and anti-war seemed to become less important to these people over time. But man, I can't I, I couldn't have predicted how much being anti-war would become a complete thing of the past like it seemingly has become now. I mean, I'm not saying there isn't still a core of that anti-left there, but I mean, like, it seems like they're either silent or repressed or I mean, I don't know where they're at. I just don't seem to see them anymore, except for like the groups that we know like they're involved in this rally and stuff. I mean, what, how has that happened on the left? Like, is it just like propaganda? Is it just 
like Trump derangement syndrome combination of a few different you know, things? It's a couple of things. I mean, I think part of it is that it was an illusion that the left was very good on war during W. Bush because it was W. Bush. And they're attacking this Middle Eastern country full of oil. He's got all of his buddies from Houston, Texas. And it's just, you know, even though that's not really what the war was about, it was really much more about Israel and, you know, neoconservative doctrines of global hegemony and this and that rather than making Exxon rich. But just to the average hippie or, you know, the average person who's like a click to the left of the Democrats at all, this is just no blood for oil. It's real simple, you know, kind of thing. And so, which was the slogan from a decade before when his father had done it. So there was a huge, you know, first of all, there's a huge partisan incentive for them to participate in the anti-war movement against Bush. But there was also not a partisan disincentive, right? There was, you know, the liberals who were supporting it in, in Congress and that kind of thing. The left out in the street didn't own them or have you know too much loyalty to them right so like they didn't care that they were hurting hillary or Kerry or um biden by opposing the war that those democratic senators supported you know what i mean that that wasn't really affecting them in any way right but then so it, and then you know it did last for a while through the the bush years because iraq war ii was such an absolute disaster yeah. he had this poor lady cindy sheehan whose son was killed in 2004 there in solder city who you know did her protest against bush at camp casey and and all that in 2005 and the democrats decided you know this is essentially the most polarizing issue in the country right now and we're going to essentially climb into congress and get our majority in congress back by climbing on cindy sheehan's back you know and that was what they did and so people say you know it was when obama was elected was when the liberals all shut up about the war but the way i remember it was it was when the democrats retook the congress in 2006 was when they all shut up about the war because they didn't care about it anymore. And it went to show just kind of what AstroTurf all that effort had been. That, you know, he had all these people in the street. Where do they all come from? What group sponsored them to all come out? Because those groups have turned them off. Those emails are not going out to those lists to turn people out anymore. And what, I remember um, at the Texas State Capitol, there were the women in black who would stand there every Wednesday and protest against the war. And they went from, you know, 50 to five when, you know, before Obama even came, when it was just, okay, mission accomplished. The Democrats got the Congress back. And then what did Pelosi do? She gave George Bush another, you know, $100 billion to kill Iraqis with, to launch his giant surge. She didn't oppose him and stop him from doing the surge. She supported that whole thing, which, you know, accomplished nothing except to win the war for America's regional adversaries, the Iranians. Um, and um, and then Barack Obama came and, you know, you got to hand it to him from like a public relations perspective that like on the surface of it, he's the exact opposite of W. Bush. You know, um, you know, he's tall, dark and handsome Democrat from Illinois, as opposed to short cross eyed and stupid Republican from Texas, you know, and like so he's he, he had that charm. Now, what's funny at that time, the irony for us libertarians who really know and care about the substance of these issues like you're talking about is the opposite of W. Bush in 2008 was Ron Paul, who is yeah. 
also a white Protestant Christian Texas Republican politician who on the surface, you know, even though older, like basically climbed out of the same cloning machine as W. Bush, as far as the public was concerned, like we all know that W. Bush was a cousin of the Queen of England and all of this stuff, this, <laughs> this very blue blood. But the public thought that he was from West Texas and whatever, you know, like TV said. So here you have Ron Paul, who on the surface is exactly like W. Bush, who in substance is the exact. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details opposite and and what the American people really needed, but they were never going to be able to see through that. You know what I mean? It was just never in the cards. So, but you got to give them the credit that they wanted to elect the guy that was the opposite of Bush. They just elected the guy who was just like him, only looked different and sounded different, you know? Um, And then when Obama came in, he did live up to his promise to get us out of Iraq. And that was enough. So he tripled the war in Afghanistan, but nobody cares about Afghanistan. And by tripling the war, he still didn't make it nearly as big as Iraq War II was at the worst of it. You know what I mean? And so, and Afghanistan's on the far side of Iran from where all the Mesopotamia stuff's going on. And so they just looked the other way. It was the compromise. Obama made the calculation that if I escalate Afghanistan, I'll be able to shut up McCain and Graham without angering my base. Yeah. And it worked, you know, um, yeah. and then so that was the last gasp for it, man, because I mean, they didn't say nothing about Libya, Syria. And look, I, I really should build in the caveat here. And I think you did already. But I want to agree with it that like, man, there are a lot of great anti-war journalists and, and leftists and, act, you know, activists and, and leftists. If it wasn't for progressives and leftists, you know, socialist types and their journalism, we wouldn't know anything about the national security state and our wars. I mean, they're, you know. 
95% um, of the good journalism about torture, about spying, about whatever um, comes from the left. Alternative takes on the real history of American intervention in Ukraine, for example. You go to Consortium News. You want to learn about that. You read Bob Perry and Joe Loria. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of great libertarians, too. But I'm just saying, you know, um, on the individual level, and on like the subset level of like who does the best anti-war journalism and activism, it is still the leftist. You know, Medea Benjamin, Copink, they never went away. And us libertarians, there's just not enough of us to compare. So you can have like, even when the, the liberals and the progressives forget about war, the ones who still remember and care, are there's still more of them than there are of us when we never got over it at all. You know what right. I mean? So they're still our friends and we still do rely on them. And, and, um, so I don't want to like, you know, be too broadly insulting there. We're talking about, you know, the mass political movement of the W. Bush years was, you know, yeah. well, I just, in, in, I, in February, March of 2003 here in Austin, Texas, where they turned up 50,000 people marched. Yeah, you know, but what, what I realized, you know, is that I thought there was and I think you're right. Like, I think I thought there were more anti-war people on the left than there actually were. But that was because. Like when I was like a anti-war Bernie Sanders guy, I was actually anti-war, not just like anti-Iraq war, anti, you know, George Bush and all that. And then I remember, you know, and then then just the the well, a month ago when I already kind of had become, you know, of course, uh, black pilled on Bernie Sanders and realizing he's much more part of the establishment than I used to believe because I used to believe Bernie Sanders was the opposite of George Bush. But man, I. I couldn't help but feel just like that lat, like an extra uh, twinge of betrayal when he withdrew that war powers resolution. Because like I, yeah. I knew he was never like anti-war the way that like I am and we are. But man, I when when he was the one behind that, I was like, come on, Bernie, like you you, you can't back down from this. And then when he did, it just like like just punch in the freaking gut. Like I just couldn't believe yeah. it. Like I mean, you know, and and it's just. But then I don't see any of like my old Bernie Sanders friend, you know, from from back in my like my sister and all of her friends and people we used to go to the rallies and stuff like none of them are paying attention. They just don't care. They're just happy that Joe Biden's in office and that like he's talking to transgender people and stuff because like that's all they freaking care about anymore. And it's just like we're on the cusp of potential nuclear escalation and no one no one gives no one gives a crap. You know, I got to say, man, it's very frustrating to me, too, that, you know, Carl Gershman, who's got to be the biggest dork in America, right? He just can spend a few million dollars. Him and George Soros can put a couple of million dollars on the ground in Serbia or in Georgia or in Kyrgyzstan. And blam, they got a revolution. I mean, look at what they did with that the crazy thing with the pussy hats, you know, when Donald Trump came in. All of a sudden, he had tens of thousands of people with their same color-coded little gimmick protesting out there at the drop of whoever's command. I don't know. I don't know. Like, obviously, we don't have millions of dollars. But if we did have millions of dollars, who do you pay to come out and be part of this thing? Somehow, the National Endowment for Democracy from the United States of America can just go to any country they want and, you know, turn out a revolution. And and here in America, where we've been right about everything this whole time, where everything they've said has been a lie this whole time, 
where all they've done is waste all this money and kill all these people and sow all this chaos and can't even keep people interested at all. You know, like you're saying, they're just, if TV tells you that, you know, we're talking about gender ideology this week, then I guess we are. And, and honestly, like, I don't know. It seems like we might not be worse off if all anti-war libertarians and leftists and conservatives for that matter in the country would all just put our money together and hire a PR firm to just figure it out for us or something. Cause we don't know what to do. Like, I don't know in all this time, I don't know how to get people interested in the thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. You, you actually uh, touched on the next subject I wanted to bring up. Uh, so largely speaking, what happened to, the anti-war left because as of last year at least my thought was along the lines of what jacob was saying there's like a few here and there you know the journalists like you were saying but as a movement it just seemed to be gone but now seeing the seeing the movement uh come together to uh put together the rage against the war machine rally seeing the people's party come in seeing jimmy Dore, medea benjamin among others join in working i've been working with uh nick brana of the people's party for a little while now and uh, i have nothing but good things to say about him like well what's been your experience uh so far and have, have you noticed any changes over the past year since uh russia ukraine started uh you know i really don't know i mean i did hear um garland nixon i was on an event a uh, 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 conference call thingy with him yesterday uh to promote the event and he was saying you know he does a live show on kpfk in la and he was saying the callers a year ago were all, you know, very caught up in this and that that's really changed a lot. And everybody now can kind of see through all the hype from a year ago um, and that, you know, the anti-war left is coming around more and more. So, you know, I guess ask me again after, you know, the event at the end of February and we'll see how big it is and how many people we can get to to come out to the thing. Um you know, I don't know what to expect. Uh, I yeah. hope thousands of people come and, and you know, uh, make Americans look good. Honestly, look, I don't know how they did it, like, by what mechanisms. I think what it is is, like, if you go back to the, the big anti-war protests of 20 years ago, what it really was is you had moveon.org and you had the Answer Coalition, which is, they're like a communist group, but they had you know, vast networking skills. I don't know exactly how they were doing it, but I think they had, they must've had these huge email lists that they were activating. It must've been moveon.org was a big part of it. Like everybody go out and they had just signed up so many left-wing and democratic activists um, from the time of Bill Clinton's impeachment was when that was started. And I think there was move on and a few others. And I guess just the democratic party, you had their email lists saying, all right, everybody turn out. Let's make a huge thing out of this. And then so you have, you know, not just groups, but groups of groups. You have, you know, coalitions of, of groups and, and vast telephone trees and email lists where they're just able to turn out people by the tens of thousands. I mean, I'm telling you, it had to be minimum 50,000 people marching on February and March 15th here in Austin, Texas um, against the wars. And they, and they did that all across the country. Now, you know, unfortunately, if you remember, once the war started, it was like, oh, well, you know, we tried to stop it, but we couldn't stop it. And then really the protest pretty much died down then because the idea was that, oh, hell, well, it, 
you know, there's no way to pull them back out now. We're not going to be able to like demand that Bush come home by the end of the summer. That's not going to happen. We weren't able to stop it. So a lot of the energy behind the anti-war movement really fell off right away once the war began. It was like, come on, everybody, let's every all hands on deck to try to stop it. And then but once we couldn't stop it, then that was the huge kick in the gut right then. You know, and then, like I say, the Democrats took the Congress back. They didn't want to force the issue anymore. Obama ran on being better on war than those guys, but not too, too good on it. He didn't want to he didn't need to be too, too good on it. And he didn't want to stake out too good of a position. Then, of course, you know, in practice, he launched five wars. So now it's like, well, do you love your anti-war position or do you love this president that you're so dedicated to, especially in the face of his evil right wing enemies? Right. And then so that just completely, you know, disincentivized. Uh, principled non-interventionism on the left uh, to terrible degrees. Um, but, you know, Joe Biden, and I said this back when he was running, Joe Biden's no Barack Obama. Pardon me. God dang. So, um, you know, it's sort of like if JFK had expanded Vietnam, you wouldn't have had like, hey, hey, JFK, how many kids did you kill today? But with LBJ, it's like, yeah, you know, so I think like with Joe Biden, um, you know, but look, Americans aren't getting blown up in this thing, right? They're fighting to the That's left the problem, Ukrainian yeah. and all of that. So for now, if, if there's anything that's white privilege, like the left will go on about that, but won't realize like the only thing that you could say is close to a white privilege is the fact that, you know, the white liberals aren't the ones fighting these freaking wars that, that they're either advocating for or turning a blind eye to. Right. Yeah. Same for all the pro-war trolls in my mentions on Twitter uh, all day. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. We're all pro-Putin, but you're his greatest enemy. But all you do is complain to me on Twitter all day. Shouldn't you be getting exploded <laughs> in a trench over there somewhere, proving your loyalty to your principles? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. I, I don't get it. It's like people, it, again, it's, like I asked at the beginning, it's like I don't not only the politicians in charge, but like the people who are on Ukraine's side, so to speak, or who are like pro-Ukraine, like we have to pour all this money and support into Ukraine. And if you at all question that, then you're a, you know, a, a Putin apologist or whatever. It's like, how do you see this ending? It's like they, they don't want to have that conversation. You can't get them to answer that simple question. Like, like, just think about this realistically. Like, I mean, no one's saying Yes, they just Ukraine should just surrender and let, let Russia completely go in and take over all the territory and then let them go and take, you know, m more of the, the Baltic states. Like, no one's saying that, but we're just saying, like, the opposite is also not a good solution. <laughs> like, you know, like we need to actually like like all parties involved need to actually come to the table and talk peace. And that means like they're going to have to be willing to make compromises and concessions. That's. That's the only realistic path to peace. And if you aren't down for that, then don't call yourself anti-war. I'm sorry. <laughs> yep. Yeah. One thing I'll add on to that. So I had a conversation with uh, Michael Heiss uh, a couple of days ago about the rally. And in my head up to that point, I've been thinking, oh, this is probably going to be like all libertarians with a few people on the left sprinkled in. That's probably what I'd expect. And But he actually said at one point, you know, oh, I think that it's mostly going to be people on the left and we need to get as many libertarians there as possible. 
and that just blew my mind. So me, I'm not sure if that'll actually happen or not, but if, you know, if it's 50, 50, even I, I well, let's have a contest, it. right? Like, let's it's see. not a contest. No, yeah. But I definitely like I'm used at this point. I have not been to that many events uh, where it's a mix of people on different sides. So um, I'm looking forward to uh, meeting some of our friends on the left. Um, that's another reason to come out. So uh, I'll I just remember, give. Hmm? I was gonna say I remember going to you know anti-war stuff back when I was young and running in, and when I was a leftist, running into Ron Paul libertarian types and going, "Oh, I I like Ron Paul, but I don't know he wants to like abolish the IRS, and that's just crazy." <laughs> <laughs> Boy, of all the hills to get killed on, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I guess they must have loved paying their taxes. All right, so I was like. You know, I'm a libertarian, but I'm kind of a old right wing John Bircher in a way too, kind of. So, like in the 2003 protest, I don't know if this was March or or February. I did go to both of them, but I think it must have been the February one. My sign said, "We don't wait." What was it? No more UN wars. I think is what it was. <laughs> you know, because George W. Bush was going, "Look, we're just trying to enforce the." UN resolutions and all that, which, you know, he was really just using that as a fig leaf. But I was like, no, it's the new world order, dude. It's a UN war against Iraq. We gotta go stop. So I was like, yeah, all the all the left wingers with their signs, no blood for oil. And mine was like, no to this UN war. Something I can't remember what it was. Like. I think I have a picture somewhere of me with that sign, actually, man. I don't know. Can't remember what it said. I remember yeah. it had a big black UN on it. Yeah, so hopefully... And I remember people looking at me like, what does that mean? I thought this is an oil war. What's a UN war? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's funny. But hopefully... Which it wasn't a UN war. They were closer to the mark than I was. Well, hopefully this can be the start of turning libertarians and the left in more of an anti-war direction back to back to our roots for, for both of us in many ways. Yeah. Well, and for the so, right-wingers too, man, we need good, good outreach to the paleocons. Um, I mean, there just ain't no reason in the world for a conservative to be a George W. Bush guy anymore. Like, hadn't you been lied to and stabbed in the front enough, you know, to to understand mm -hmm. that these guys ain't with you? The same guys who would take your guns would take your sons. And, you know, there's just nothing to believe in at all in this anymore. And so, you know, for for right wingers who aren't too scared of getting left wing cooties on them, you guys all all come and show up, too. I mean, I like to think that. You know, if anybody had a chance to stop Iraq War II, it would have been the Patriot Movement. They were too busy chasing the missile that hit the Pentagon and all this stupid crap that was not right at all. When what they should have done was they should have been saying, focusing on the fact that Iraq did not do September 11th. And they could have gone to those protests wearing their, you know, Vietnam cami greens and with their American flags. And they could have marched with the hippies and said, that's right. We're tough guys. We're right wingers. We're Christians. We're veterans. And we know better than George Bush's lies here. Saddam with the mustache ain't Osama with the beard. And don't try and tell me otherwise. I know better. But they didn't do that. And I think if they had done that, if that had been, you know, the rallying point of the, uh, uh, the Patriot right at that time, instead of a bunch of conspiracy tardation, then they might've been able to stop that war. 
But the narrative was that, well, a bunch of stupid hippie children are against it and all tough guys and and conservatives and right wingers and patriots are for it. You know, I don't know if you guys remember this, the South Park episode about Iraq War II. It didn't even have Saddam Hussein in it. And he was a regular appearing um, character on South Park, but he wasn't even in it or he was barely in it because the conflict was between country and rock and roll. And if you like country, then you're for the war. And if you like rock and roll, then you're against it. Right. I guess you could switch it around now. Right. If you like rock and roll, you're you're uh, pro war. And if you're if you like country, <laughs> then you're against it. But yeah. Um, but that was what it was, is it was just the cultural divide. And so if the Patriots, who were, a lot of them were Vietnam War veterans, especially, too. And, and you know, when they said Patriots, they meant it. If they'd all showed up with their cami green and their American flags and said, we're not hippies. We're, we're mean, tough, old right-wingers, but we're smart. And we know better than George Bush's lies here. I think that could have really done a lot to disrupt the narrative at the time. But they were all absent without leave. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I do want to take a few questions, but before we get to that, uh, let me give the details on the rally. And uh, once I give the high level overview, uh, I want to make sure first we have everything we need to know. So Rage Against the War Machine, Washington, D.C., February 19th. If you can't make it to D.C., there are sister rallies going on in several cities in California and among other places, I believe Austin has one too. I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go to one of those, uh, if you scroll further down, uh, then there's information on that. I won't touch on that too much here because I do want to highlight some of the sponsors for it. It's Libertarian Party, People's Party, the Mises Caucus is on there. Uh, Peace in Ukraine, Liberty Speaks, Radical Caucus, I saw them in here earlier, Action for Assange, Punk Rock Libertarians, uh, many other groups. So it is yeah, a coalition. Shout yeah, shout out to Anna from the uh, Radical Caucus in the, in the comments. I've known her a while. Glad that she's involved. Yeah, and together uh, we, we put together the list of demands for the rally. Not one more penny for the war in Ukraine. Uh, negotiate peace, stop the war inflation, disband NATO, global nuclear de-escalation, slash the Pentagon budget, abolish the CIA and the military industrial deep state, abolish war and empire, restore civil liberties, and free Julian Assange. So basically bringing us back from the brink of nuclear war and restoring restoring civil liberties and ending the institutions that brought us to this point in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And we have some of the speakers here. There's more as well, but you, Scott, you're on here. We've got, uh, again, we're bringing in the left with Jimmy Dore, Medea Benjamin, uh, Daniel McAdams from the Ron Paul Institute. Oh yeah. Uh, we've got Supreme here too. So we do have some uh, people in the music scene uh, coming out as well. Um. And one, one more thing I'll highlight um, before we move on is transportation. So you can either go to rageagainstthewar.com slash transportation, or if you go on the home page and scroll down, you can find any of these other pages as well. Uh, we do have buses leaving from Pennsylvania and Maryland right now. Uh, there's, a, there's a few others as well that will be coming soon. But if you want to sign up for one of those, uh, then you can go to this page 
to do that. Uh, the last thing I'll say for now is one more reminder. Uh, we're still accepting uh, donations to help set up the rally, make sure it becomes a reality. So uh, to get your comment or your question to be top priority, please uh, donate at givebutter.com slash rage against war. So now, uh, Scott, I did want to ask you before we move on to questions, uh, what can you tell the people in the audience? Uh, what's your call to action to bring people down to DC? Like what's, well, if, if you're telling, you're telling the audience and then, you know, they're telling their friends, what's the, what can they say to bring them down to DC? Well, it should be a great show and a great time. Uh, you know, I hope that there's, um, you know, plenty of hot dogs and whatever people can make a fun event out of the thing, as you say, get to a chance to meet people in person that you only known on the internet for a while and that kind of deal. Um, so on a personal level, it should be fine. But as far as like the obligation here, I think, you know, we have to show the government just, you know, through a still shot or two that the anti-war movement filled this space. And they showed up and it was cold outside and they came anyway and um, made their presence known and and are impossible to ignore. And so um, I really hope that enough different groups can get mobilized to want to join in on this thing where we really do have just, you know, busloads of people coming and um, and can really make a spectacle out of the thing. And then, you know, let all our great anti-war speakers say lots of great anti-war things and get people inspired, but mostly prove with the numbers and with, you know, the masses of people that can show up that we do care about this and that we object to the current policy. We want something done. Um, I'm afraid that, you know, for all the people who are against the policy and are, are worried about what's going on in the country, that are they going to know about this? You know, are we able to advertise this and promote it in a way to get it in front of enough eyeballs in front of the right people who want to come and participate in the thing? So that's the real challenge. And that's not something that I have, uh, you know, any skills in whatsoever. So, um, you know, I don't know, there's really anything I can do about it. I'm trying to promote it on my radio show in LA. I'm telling people in LA, look, I know it's 2000 miles from here, but it's just a few hundred <laughs> bucks and it's probably worth it, you know, get on the plane and, and make yourself known. So, um, you know, I don't know how much, how many people that's worth, but, you know, I really think that, um, you know, if we can do it, especially if we prove that you can get, you know, coalitions of people from all different, um, political persuasions to all come together and work together on this most important thing that, really helps set the precedent for the future too. And other, you know, single issues that we can come together and work together on. As far as the Libertarian Party, I mean, obviously we're, our purpose is running candidates, um, but there's a lot of off time, you know, uh, between presidential election or even, you know, regular election seasons where the LP is to me like kind of ready-made, already the biggest anti-gun control group in America right? Or the pro-gun rights group in America. We're already the biggest and most important anti-war group in America. We're already the biggest um, group fighting for school choice and fighting for medical freedom and fighting for, you know, all of these things. And so like, what's the biggest medical freedom outfit in America? What's well, the Libertarian Party? 
And what's the biggest free speech group in America? The Libertarian Party. And what's the biggest anti-war group in America? The Libertarian Party. And we could do all of these things. And, and, you know, I like to think that, you know, if we can pull this off and, and a few more set, a few more examples like that, then that really helps set a precedent for the future that, you know what, maybe it'll be more difficult to get right wingers to show up at our anti-war rally, but we'll show up at their anti-gun control rally. We'll work with them on their thing and maybe we can help build some bridges. And the next time we hold an anti-war protest, they'll come with us. You know, I know that Angela has reached out and was talking to some of the people who were, um, I'm assuming, more libertarian and right-leaning on the uh, defeat the vaccine mandates movement and has invited them to come out. And so, you know, obviously libertarians stand with them on their issue. Can we get them to stand with us on ours? And so, you know, the, the more and better work that we do all the time, the better it is for building up our reputation among other people and building up our ability to, you know, work together and get the changes that we want on other issues as well. So, um, you know, calling all Libertarian Party members, let's fill that mall. Let's do our best to do it. And there are tens of thousands of us. And that's just the party members. I mean, in the movement, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of us. So let's do it. Yeah, that's, that's well said, Scott. Thank you. Um, so, uh I'll I'll but say that you know obviously Scott's going down. Um, I'll be going down to DC. Um, many of our organizers in Pennsylvania uh, will be going down to DC as well. Uh, we're organizing the shuttles uh, and other people coming down from all parts of the country. So uh, definitely make every effort to come down to DC. Uh, I'm I'm sure we'll uh, meet up with you guys there. We'll meet at the Lincoln Memorial at noon. Uh, march over to the White House and give our demands to Joe Biden. So with that said, I'll move on to questions. So, uh, Jacob, uh, you want to read the first one? Yeah, so I guess we're going from the top here. Uh, Liam McCollum, uh, love love Liam. Have, have, I've had him on my show a few times, and uh, uh, he's written for libertarian institute and stuff scott knows. um uh, i wonder if he thinks world war three is inevitable at this point it seems like they're escalating all over iran uh china russia uh etc so yeah, uh, what do you think you know, no it's not inevitable um but we need major changes and sooner than later um it's it is extremely dangerous and they do seem to think that you know, they don't have a problem at all. They pick a fight with Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea all at the same time um, and and figure that they can just get away with it. You know, the idea essentially is we're so strong, they wouldn't dare. We tell them what to do, they'll back down. And But what's plan B if our bluff gets called? You know, the Vietnamese, they were supposed to give in. They just wouldn't, you know? Um yeah. So, um, I mean, luckily, you know, these are not all allies. I mean, Russia and China have an alliance, kind of, but is it like a full-scale military alliance like NATO where they're actually pledged to come to each other's defense no matter what? I don't think so. And neither of them have an official alliance with North Korea or Iran. So if we got into an 
absolutely terrible war with any one of these states, it wouldn't necessarily spread, but it would necessarily be an absolute catastrophe. And there's no way that we could fight Russia, China, Iran, or North Korea without having absolute severe consequences for the United States, for the global economy, for, you know, in the case of Iran, our troops throughout the Middle East and all those economic targets in the Middle East. In the case of Russia, China, the threat of nuclear war, same with North Korea, the threat of the desolation of the South and possibly even the nuking of Japan or the United States. So um, you don't need a world war when just one will do you, you know? Fair enough. Uh, next question comes from um, Autumn Pangia, who's another uh, Pennsylvania state coordinator. Uh, I know it's difficult uh, when you know so much, but can you speak to young people who haven't been plugged into all this stuff that's happening and make a plea for the demonstration um, on February 19th at the rally? Um, or even just, you know, on the, I would add to that, just the issue in general. Like, how do you, how do you talk to people about, about this stuff and, and, and try to make them see the importance of it other than like, you know, like, ah, oh, we're all getting, like, like, you know, you know, you, you, if you try getting too, like my experience, if you try getting too, animated about it they just think you're being dramatic they're like oh you're just being crazy or conspiratorial or whatnot and so like what yeah. what's the what's the best way we can reach people um and and get them to pay attention or get them to you know come out to these kind of events yeah isn't it amazing the way that the government still gets the benefit of the doubt no matter what and if you're anti-government then the burden is still on you totally they're like what do you mean you don't believe in the current war well come on i mean the last eight wars were just terrible and we shouldn't have done it. Like the last 10, you can't, but no, I mean, come on, they wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't the right thing to do. And so you just like starting at the bottom of uh, Mount Everest uh, each time. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, it's, it's the consensus on TV. All the grownups want to do this. How could you be outside of that? Um, and, yeah, and where have I heard that before? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's the same thing every time. Um, you know, the bet the answer is that you know, for anyone who actually has eyes to see, that you know, the government doesn't have your best interests at heart. And even if they did, you know, even if they really were trying to fight for the national interest the best that they can, they suck at it. They're absolutely terrible, and they have put us all in terrible danger here. You know, they told the New York Times. That, look, we're calibrating the amount of weapons that we're pouring into Ukraine. We're putting in just enough weapons to deter Russia from attacking, but not so much that it'll provoke them into attacking. Yeah, well, so either they were lying about that and they were calibrating it just right to guarantee an attack, or they really suck at calibrating the right amount of weapons to pour into a country to deter an attack and not provoke one. In either case, they are unfit to be our security force. And these yeah. people absolutely should not be in charge. And, and now we're just sending in train lengths of tanks and assuming it's not it's not gonna do anything in to provoke it further. Like Yeah, and, and and if it does, well it's their fault for um for you know reacting to our reaction to their reaction to the thing that we did yeah and I mean, come on guys you'd be totally fine if canada and mexico formed a military alliance and put all these you know you know uh missile launching uh equipment on our border and stuff like yeah. come on <laughs> you know i mean the truth is and especially the way she framed it like talking to the young people and whatever 
you know, the answer is that um, these are all kind of purely emotional arguments and they're either feeling it or they're not. You know, like yeah. you think about the uh, the Black Sabbath song, Children of the Grave, um, about, you know, the threat of nuclear war between the Americans and the Soviet Union and the fate of the planet hanging in the balance and all of that. Well, that was a concern back then. But people aren't really feeling that right now. You know, that was the Vietnam War era where people thought that, you know, this thing could get really out of control and we could have, uh, you know, the, we're on the eve of destruction and all of that stuff from that era. Now, in the last 20 years, we fought, whoa, we're patrolling Pashtuns in Paktika who are no threat to us whatsoever. That's why we're fighting them is because they can't possibly do anything to us. And so we can go, you know, rampaging through the Middle East and kill a couple of million people. And the American people back home don't even really have to know or care or prioritize the story at all. It's not even a major news story when, you know, when a certain presidential candidate ran for our party last time. And I said, get out there and tell them we got to get out of Afghanistan. She wouldn't do that because you know what? She didn't really know that we were in Afghanistan. Like, she probably believed me that we were, but, like, she didn't really know that we were still there. And she wasn't going to go and stick her neck out and say, get out of a country that she's not even sure that we're still in. Because she didn't even really know that we were still in Afghanistan, you know? Um, and that's just how it goes, you know? Um, people are, are so disconnected from this kind of thing. So... You know, if you want to make a, a easy comparison, look at Vietnam where we're fighting the um, we're fighting a proxy war with the Russians in Vietnam. They were helping back Ho Chi Minh and his forces probably to help bog us down and bleed us to bankruptcy a little bit worse in there and all that. But look at the map. There's an entire China between Russia and Vietnam. In other words, the Russians didn't give a damn what happened in Vietnam. It didn't matter to them if they if their side lost in Vietnam. Not really. But look at the map. In fact, that might be something to ask a kid. Oh, you're for this war? You, you know, yeah, you need a, a reason to support it. First of all, show me where Ukraine is. Right. Right. Um, and if you can't tell them, if you can't show me where Ukraine is or explain to me why the British had a war to steal Crimea 170 years ago or whatever over there, then um, you need to recognize that we're in a conflict that is none of America's national interest whatsoever. And we have literally the, the American president saying, well, we'll help the Ukrainians, but it's not really in our national interest to such a degree that we would put our troops in there. I promise you, we are definitely not putting troops in. But then you have the Russians saying, listen, if the war goes much worse for us. We might break out our atom bombs. They keep saying that. So in other words, young people, your president, in his own words, says that we are at the brink of Armageddon, that we're as close as we've been to a major power war with a H-bomb state, a thermonuclear armed state, the most powerful nuclear weapon state on the planet, over a country that he admits is not important enough to us that we would put our troops on the ground. And in a fight over whether the border of the Donbass should be here or here on the map. In other words, it's something that is not part of America's national interest whatsoever in any way. And and they got to understand that if, if the Russians break out one or two H-bombs, it's on from there. Everybody starts nuking each other and nobody backs down. 
And eventually, you know, by the end of the week, we have a general nuclear war with Russia and we all die. So not to be too alarmist about it, because I'm not like predicting nuclear war, but I am telling you that one is more likely now than it was two years ago by about a thousand percent. Well, there's definitely, you know, they have raised the risk so much and for and unnecessarily in every way. So, you know, to quote Ozzy, if you don't want to be children of the grave, then you're going to have to show up. You know, yeah. you have to do the right thing. Um, be yeah, brave. It's not, a, it's not show the world that love is still alive and all that. Yeah. It's like, we, I think, I think a lot of younger people kind of, and even me to a certain extent, I, you know, even though I, I did, as I got older, kind of become awakened to the, the, the horrors that our military was doing. But I just remember as a kid, you kind of grow up with this, like, you know, America's safe. Like nothing bad could ever happen. All the threats of nuclear war and invasion and stuff like that was, your grandparents or your great grandparents they can't you know that will never happen here and it's like it it, it could like it, it's it's not it, it's a fairy tale that 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 uh you know we get sold through our culture and public education and all. And look that. it could be an accident you know we have all the time you have a russian computer says that nukes are coming in over the pole and then they go oh come on and bang on it and it, oh okay it's okay you know <laughs> but on a normal day in 1995, it's fine, right? But if that happens right now, they might launch their nukes. Yeah. They might not be willing to assume it's a mistake. And, you know, the Americans have all these satellites. They can tell any rocket launch anywhere in the world in an instant. The Russians don't have that. The Russians have yeah. nothing like the uh, warning systems and the, you know, the early warning uh, radar systems and everything else that the Americans have. So that just means that their trigger finger is that much itchier than ours is. And they're, you know, very well could be that much more likely to overreact to a mistake. I mean, you could have there's I read a novel like this when I was a boy. This is the way the world ends. And it's a crowd of vultures. What do you call a flock of vultures flying over the North Pole are mistaken for an incoming salvo of ICBMs. And so they launch. Everybody launches. Use them or lose them. Yeah, uh, when they start tearing up treaties and shipping in tanks, it's 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 like you're it's almost like you're asking at that point. Like there's when you do the research on it, there's so many near misses in the Cold War, like more than just the Cuban mm-hmm. Missile Crisis that most people don't know about, like blips on the radar, nuclear submarines losing contacts, and if it weren't for you know certain brave individuals who made the call, like no, we're not going to be the one to start world. World War Three, then it could have happened. Yep, totally right. Yeah. So, all right, you got the next question. All right, Jacob, you're muted. Shit, didn't realize I was muted. Uh, next question from Anthony West: Is there any way to get through to people who are more concerned with being on the winning side of a potential world war than preventing one from breaking out in the first place? Yeah, I don't know. Shout dummy at them. I mean, what are, <laughs> look, uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev agreed and put out an official joint statement that said a nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. Yeah. Are you telling me you're going to be satisfied if we nuke all the cities in Russia and we only lose five or ten? But we can't let Russia win, Scott. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the reality is that, look, the. The fact of the matter is, if Russia rolled right in and conquered former Soviet Georgia and all of Ukraine, 
I don't care. I mean, I'm against that in principle, but in terms of America's national interest, it makes no difference whatsoever. You know, if you if you look at the Bush senior administration, when they're talking about expanding into Europe, they go, look, we're going to pretend that we're doing this partnership for peace with the Russians and they're invited, but we don't really mean that. We're actually going to expand NATO. But don't worry. I mean, we're only talking about expanding east into Eastern Europe. It's not like we're going to expand into Ukraine or anything. <laughs> right? Because to them, Ukraine is east of Eastern Europe. They wouldn't consider that. We're just talking about, you know, Slovakia and Slovenia. What the hell's the problem with that? Nobody cares. It's like we're going to come right up to Russia's border. That would be insane. I got a clip of Joe Biden in 97 saying, look, we're just talking about bringing in Romania, Hungary and the Czech Republic. It's not like we're talking about bringing in the Baltics. I mean, that would be provocative, right? Which is, of course, exactly what W. Bush did in 2004. And yeah. then four years later, promised to bring in Ukraine and Georgia. And, and Rand Paul's lone no votes to add more countries to NATO don't seem so crazy now. <laughs> no, definitely not. A, a follow-up to this kind of uh, fits with the last question. They, they were asking uh, if it's your position that Ukraine should surrender to Russia. No, it's my position that Ukraine should have implemented the Minsk II deal that they signed in February of 2015. And, we and then this war wouldn't have happened at all. Yeah, we and the have fact is, yes, they are going to lose the Donbass, minimum. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, SP Spaz, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said in November, well, you boys sure did a good job taking Kherson City back. Don't you think you better sit down and negotiate now? While you're behind, but before you get too much further behind. So, like, you see the, the way that question is phrased, like, this is a matter of simple morality. Like, it's a matter of, one, whether the Americans agree that it would be good or bad for Ukraine to lose some of its territory here. But that's not the question. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And yeah. what are the Russians going to do about it? The Russians are going to kill people until they own the Donbass. That's what they're going to do about it. Now, are the Ukrainians going to succeed in forcing them out? Could the Americans help them succeed in forcing the Russians out without increasing the risk of nuclear war and the extinction of our species to an unreasonable degree or not? So it's not a question of some comic book morality tale. Oh, you think Ukraine should just surrender or what? I think Ukraine should just surrender or that NATO should have a full-scale war with Russia yeah. in order to make sure that Kiev keeps, you know, a monopoly, violent control over Donetsk and Luhansk. Give me a break. Yeah. No, it's completely you know, naive. I saw a guy, a guy did a video uh, denouncing Dave Smith for explaining this story on the Joe Rogan show. And he begins by saying, oh, yeah, sure. Russia ought to just be able to get whatever it wants by brandishing their nuclear weapons. I guess we'll just let them take England. Well, first of all, Ukraine yeah, ain't right next to England, each other. dude. And they could take <laughs> 10 Ukraines and it don't amount to jack shit compared to our relationship with England. OK, so first of all, you're not special, not at all. Right. And secondly, this is not the case of the Russians just brandishing nuclear weapons and being bullies and saying, give us what we want. 
This is the case of the Russians appeasing the United States of America for 30 years and then finally stopping appeasing us and saying this far but no further, see? So all these analogies are completely inane. You know, all these, and the way that these questions are phrased. Oh, you think that Putin should just be able to take England? Yeah, well, Georgia and Ukraine ain't England. And history didn't start yesterday. And history didn't start yesterday. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Joe Bissell, how much more likely is nuclear war now that we have tactical nukes? Oh, that's a good question. Um, more likely? I don't know how much more likely, but yes. I mean, the point of making these dial-a-yield nuclear missiles and so forth is to make them more usable. And, you know, there's a quote from Wesley Clark. Uh, summing up the general's position on this, which is a nuke is just another way to kill people. That's what he said. It's just another way to kill people. Well, at much larger volumes at a time, you know, per blast, they're General Clark. But yeah, for them, it's just a bigger bang than the last one on the shelf. If the last one on the shelf wasn't big enough, you use a bigger one. But then, yes, I mean, this has always been kind of part of the game theory of nuclear negotiation over these treaties and so forth is it is it better it might be better for arsenals to be full of these gigantic you know 5 megaton city killers than to be full of mid-range usable tactical nuclear weapons supposedly usable you know 5 or 10 kilotons um you know smaller than the ones that they use they're basically you know 10 to 15 that they used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So these are considered to be smaller, usable battlefield nukes that you could use in a war. So then, you know, the Americans say, and I don't know if this is true at all, but the Americans say that the Russians have a policy called escalate to de-escalate. And that if they're really losing a war, that they could use a nuke to demonstrate that that's right. Don't you know I'm loco? I could do that again. I'm willing to go that far. So now you better back down, right? But then the Americans say, yeah, but that'll never work on us. And if the Russians ever do use a nuke to escalate, to de-escalate, well, we'll nuke them back with a bigger nuke and tell them that doesn't work on us. Now we're escalating. Now you de-escalate, right? And they did a war game like this during Donald Trump uh, when Mike Esper was the the uh, secretary of defense and they leaked the war game and said, yeah, what happens is Russia nukes Ukraine and then America nukes Belarus as a demonstration to the Russians. Right. So in other words, again, once people start using nukes in anger, that's it, man. Nobody backs down. Everybody gets dumber and dumber and dumber and more and more macho and no one can just let the other guy get the last word. You're going to let the other guy get the last word with an atom bomb and you're going to not hit back at that? No. Right? Every general and every secretary on your cabinet is screaming at you that you have to hit them back. You have to hit them back. Well, they hit NATO command headquarters. That means we got to hit Russian command headquarters. Well, we do that. They're going to nuke DC. Well, they do that. We're going to nuke Moscow. And then that's it. You use them or lose them. Once, you know, they start targeting our missile silos, we got to launch everything in our missile silos before they take out all our nukes in our silos. And this kind of thing, it's 
You know, they pretend like this is the smartest mathematicians at the University of Chicago gamed all this out. Yeah, well, they ain't that smart, you know? And, um, you know, once they start going off, then I think it's almost impossible to put that genie back in the bottle. So, yes, he's exactly right. In that sense, a, a low-yield nuclear weapon is a greater danger than a high-yield thermonuke because one leads to the other. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, let's see if we got a few more here. Before yeah, we, uh, we do have one more question I saw. Uh, so I think okay. it's a good one to end on. Yeah. Uh, Autumn Pangea again said, Scott, what do you do to relax and unplug from your studious monitoring of global affairs? Oh, that's funny. Um, well, right now I'm writing a book, so I don't relax mind <laughs> at all. Um, about once a day, I stop and eat. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I'd like to say I skate vert, but I honestly have not skated a ramp since uh, last summer or something. It's been months, maybe the fall I skated. Um, but there's a guy building a giant vert ramp out in Georgetown right now that should be done by the summer. So I'm getting back into that. I'm 46 now. So this will be my last gasp at riding the big ramp. Um, and then, you know, other than that, I got a small little family, two cats and two dogs and a two car garage and the basics. So I'm doing okay. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing I will say, uh, as far as, uh, relaxing goes like there will be musical artists including uh the famous jordan page for anyone who's familiar with the, the ron paul days uh right. coming to the rally so uh and i don't know if any of the other uh artists that we have coming like supreme will be doing uh musical performances but uh, uh jordan page will be so that's another reason to come out to the rally that's cool man um I hope they invite Immortal Technique, dude. I'd like to see him go. Yeah, I I have good reason to believe that all the speakers that are listed there now are not all the ones that are going to be coming. I think there's a okay. few more that are potential that they'll be adding on later. So we'll see. Great. Keep an eye on uh, RageAgainstWar.com, and you'll see updates about transportation, speakers, music, everything. Great. Listen, I know Max Blumenthal gives a hell of a speech, man. We invited him to the at kind of the last minute. He showed up at the end of the damn wars protest that we did uh, on September 11th before last. And he just showed up, still had his backpack on and was just ad libbing and just killed it. So, you know, uh, I just know it's going to be a great event. I really hope everyone will show up. I really appreciate you guys helping to promote it and uh, all the work that you're doing on it. And uh, I really hope people will come and help make this thing a success. It's going to be really cool. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I haven't, I still have to check to see if I can make it. I'm going to do my best, but, um, but yeah, no, it's, bring all your people too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you've got, you've got a clan almost as big as Josh Smith. So uh, you, you it's have not to quite be that there. big. It's not quite <laughs> that big. It's, it's big. I mean, four, four, we're six, six strong, four kids. So, um, but that's what, why we, why I do this, you know, it's like, I don't want them to grow up in a world like this. We got to. It's up to us. No one else is going to do it. We have to go out there and we have to get our, make our voices heard and we got to make a better future. Yep. You know? Yeah. I, I, I like paraphrasing uh, Dave Smith here. We got no room to be blackpilled. You got to do everything you can. Yeah. hundred yep. percent. Cool. Yeah. Well, great. It was, ha it was great having you on Scott. I appreciate everything you do in the movement. Appreciate you coming here to help us promote this event. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to make it out there and see you, see you give your speech. 
Yeah, give us give okay. us your plugs uh, before you go. Uh, where where can everyone follow you? Okay, um, I'm at scotthorton.org. That's my uh, show. I got 5,800 interviews going back to 2003 for you there. Uh, scotthorton.org. That's it. And um, the editorial director of antiwar.com and the director of the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. And I wrote the books, The Great Ron Paul, Hotter Than the Sun, Fool's Errand, and Enough Already. And you can find all of those at scotthorton.org slash books. And you can follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. Yeah, we already got people who are excited about your next book. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm working on a book right now called Provoked, America's Role in the Russia-Ukraine War. It's already more than 400 pages, so I got a lot of cutting to do and a lot of writing to do. And it's going to be a while, but I'm working on it. Yeah. My apologies to everyone for uh, truncating the introduction at the beginning, but uh, hey, the full on. introduction is available in the notes uh, for the show uh, on the below in great hey. detail. So just definitely check out, check out Scott and everything he's got going on. Yep. All right, cool, man. Well, thank you guys both very much for having me. All right. Thanks so much, Scott. Uh, thanks for helping us bring attention to the Rage Against the War Machine. And uh, to everyone in the audience and watching after the fact, uh, we will see you down in D.C. on February 19th, uh, RageAgainstWar.com. Jacob, you got anything before we sign off? Jacob, you're muted. <laughs> just take, <laughs> just uh, take human action. That's it. There you go. Yep. All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, all right. Yeah, we follow us at LP Mises Caucus uh, PA on all social media. Uh, goodbye and good night, everyone. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.